0: Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm Dr. Rebecca Bernard, your host and the co-author of the book Patients at Risk. Malpractice insurance company, CNA, along with Nurses Service Organization, NSO, has been providing malpractice coverage for nurse practitioners across the country in a variety of practice settings for the last 30 years. The organization released its first report on NP malpractice claims in 2005 and recently released its fifth report analyzing data from between 2017 and 2022, which showed some very interesting trends. To discuss details of this report, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Zhang. Dr. Zhang, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks, Dr. Bernard. It's uh, nice to meet you and I'm glad to be here.
0: Thank you. Kevin, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm currently a second-year resident physician in family medicine, currently based in Ohio. Uh, I have a lot of previous experience in the emergency medicine specialty. And uh, I I will say that one of the reasons I I switched, one of the large reasons I switched uh, was actually due to the increasing corporatization of the, the EM job market and the increasing trend of replacing physicians with non-physician providers such as nurse practitioners and physician assistants in the emergency department and the limited job options. Currently enjoying my time in family medicine greatly and um, love the flexibility that that especially offers.
0: You know, I'm so happy and excited to hear you say that because I love family medicine and I especially love it now that I'm doing direct primary care A lot of my colleagues in specialties are struggling with corporate medicine, and they are much more limited in being able to open their practices. But yet, in primary care, we have a lot more flexibility. So that's so awesome that you're doing that. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Well, let's dig into this report, which was produced, as I mentioned, by CNA NSO, which is a nurse practitioner malpractice company. And they're basing this data on what they call the 2022 data set which are claims against nurse practitioner-owned practice or nurse practitioner-student that were closed between 2017 and 20, the end of 2021, resulting in a payment of $10,000 or higher. So, Dr. Zhang, tell us about some of the highlights of this report.
1: One of the uh, interesting trends you, uh, you mentioned is that the payout uh, among Nurse practitioners in, in these uh, malpractice that uh, at least the ones insured by uh, NSO, has been gradually increasing uh, over the years uh, that they studied. You can see, for example, that in 2012, the average payout for a claim for at least the amount pursued in in, in these claims was uh, $285,000. And in 2017, it increased to around 300000 And in 2022, increased even further to 332000
0: What did you think when you saw those increases? Because what they pointed out here was that the increase from between 2012 and 2017 was a 5.2% increase and then between 2017 and 2022, a 10.5% increase. What what were your thoughts when you saw that increase in the average total payout amount?
1: I think one of the uh, interesting things about that number, at least with regards to the, the to the latest years, where it's around uh, 332, uh, just to, to give everyone a frame of uh, reference, the average malpractice sediment in the U.S. So this would be a number from the NPDB, the National Practitioner Data Bank, in 2018 was 348000 And I'm sure by, by now, 2023, it's probably even higher than that. But I think it is interesting that at the rate it's it's rising, one, I think there may be some point in the near future where it could potentially reach parity with just malpractice claims in general, uh, i.e. including malpractice claims that include positions. Uh, and also uh, the fact that I'm I'm glad that nurse practitioners and non-physician providers in general, hopefully we we see this trend that they are being held responsible for the mistakes they make, just like as a, a physician would. And I think that is going to be an important principle going forward as we see uh, nurse practitioners be granted uh, independent uh, or full practice authority in uh, more and more states across the nation.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely looking like that. And one of the things that we know about malpractice premiums is that traditionally nurse practitioners pay much lower premiums than physicians, but they didn't really address this in the report. But you have to wonder if the payouts are going up, if the malpractice premiums are going to increase as well. And I would think so, wouldn't you?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure it would. In order to keep up with the the payouts, they would potentially have to make uh, in case of a claim. And uh, one of my, you know, kind of, I guess you could call it a shock dawn in this, but I'm hoping that with these increasing premiums that it becomes more and more untenable for NPs to start practicing independently, like open up their own practice, whether that be a legitimate, you know, primary care practice versus something a little more questionable like a med spa or a IV hydration clinic, you know, cosmetic medicine involving Botox, things like that. Uh, as we've seen a lot of recent coverage on some NPs doing uh, liposuction, basically inappropriately supervised or unsupervised, what we we start seeing that become more and more untenable once the potential malpractice risk uh, catches up with what what they're trying to do independently.
0: Well, I think so because one of the really interesting points in this report were that the highest total average claim. Among nurse practitioners in this report were those that were covered through a nurse practitioner owned and operated office practice. And in fact, they had the highest dollar amount on average at $402,000 per claim. And the report noted that this represented an increase from 8% of claims at the last time they looked at it to 13.8% increase. So um, I think your point of having more NPs running their own practices, and and there are clearly, if it's an NP-run practice, there's probably not a physician around, and we are seeing now an increased amount of malpractice claims. Um, Do you think that that's accurate, that this is coming from NPs running their own shop and just not having any physician involvement?
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, most physicians, certainly most ethical physicians would be hesitant to be involved in, in a NP-run office practice or an office where there's primarily just NPs. Uh, because in, in that kind of context, physician it basically is in practice renting their, their license to cover the liability of these uh, non-physician providers. So, that increase from eight percent of claims to thirteen point eight percent of claims for these NP offices, I, I, I think, is keeping track with the number of states that have been granting NPs full practice authority. So, uh, I would say, like, like based on current trends, we're maybe seeing like one state a year, maybe one to two states a year. Um, like for example, Utah granted NPs uh, full practice authority back in March, I believe, or thereabouts. I mean, if you think about it, one state out of 50, that's what, like 5%, something like that. So yeah, I mean, it certainly looks like it's keeping pace with increase in FPA or full practice authority as the report does kind of mention.
0: Well, I think it's also interesting that the the rates are so high and the payouts are so great, and yet actually only a tiny minority of nurse practitioners actually own their own practices. So, it's very interesting. That's right now. So, it's kind of interesting to think if this is what we're seeing, what is it going to look like for the future? And, you know, in my mind, one can only expect to see these numbers go up.
1: Yeah, for sure. And if you look at that kind of trend from the big picture, that would indicate that a small proportion of NP owned or NP run practices are having a disproportionate impact on malpractice claims and not in a good way so going back to the old adage of no healthcare is often better than uh, bad healthcare i certainly that that seems to ring true in, in this context which i, I think is uh, just absolutely uh, wild to to think about
0: yeah, it's so counterintuitive when you think like, well, of course, some care is better than no care. And then you learn, well, you actually hurt people by making the wrong diagnosis, by giving them the wrong medicine. They might have got better on their own and actually you made their situation worse by taking care of them without really having the full understanding of how to treat patients.
1: Exactly. And kind of on a related note, I you know, I I certainly have serious concerns about even in restricted practice states, how the supervision actually works, especially in these off-site offices where there's not going to be a physician on site. Even in restricted practice states where you look at nurse practitioners, the, the laws regarding their scope of practice, a minority uh, of states actually require the physician to be on site. It's really just they have to be available for consultation over the phone or review 10% of their charts on a monthly basis or something along those lines. And in practice, that you know, it doesn't happen. You know, speaking from my previous experience in the uh, emergency department, uh, given how busy EDs are these days, and certainly it'll become even more so with less doctors and increasing corporatization, the real-time supervision isn't really happening. It's, you know, maybe if the NP has some concerns about a patient, they might, you know, ask the question, but they certainly aren't asking questions or being directly supervised for uh, every patient, which especially for residency and emergency medicine, is typically the the case. Uh, uh, the resident physicians are required to staff the patient. They see with the attending physician, and we are certainly not not seeing that on a you know ninety to one hundred percent basis with the NPs. Especially at the state mandated minimum, is only ten percent. So, I, I think that plays into a huge part of all these numbers regarding the malpractice claims, uh, especially at uh, NP-run and NP-operated clinics.
0: Well, actually, that leads us in really nicely to the next point that the the report makes, which is even though the top dollar amount was at NP-run clinics, the number one place that NPs who settled claims were working was actually at a physician office practice, and that was about 31%. And then, you know, a nice sizable chunk of of people working at aging services facilities, I guess, like nursing homes, assisted living, and then down the list towards um, emergency departments and community-based clinics. So one would presume that there's more chance, of certainly at a physician office, that there is at least a physician around. So the question is, is there being proper supervision being done? Is the physician relying on someone to come to them and alert them to concerns? Um, That may be a problem because if you look at what the claims often had to do with, it was a failure to appropriately refer patients to a higher level of care, either an emergency department or a specialist. What were your thoughts when you saw that being one of the top causes for these claims?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly that that directly reinforces what I previously said um, about inappropriate, inadequate, or or even absent supervision. The uh, the example that the N.S. report gives is, and I'll just briefly kind of read the the intro they provided. So basically, insured. NP student, they inserted a central line in the right internal jugular vein. So that's typically where a lot of central lines go. And in theory, they were, I guess, supervised by a critical care intensivist physician, who apparently was in the room but not in immediate proximity. Which just sounds sketchy. Like if you're going to be in the room, why would you not be right by the NP? And it looks like they did uh, do this using a standard ultrasound. Approach and says here that a post procedure chest X ray showed an incorrect line placement. I'm not really sure what that what that means because typically when you're doing a central line, it should be pretty obvious. in if you're in the internal jugular vein, I mean, there's not a lot of other vasculature involved in that region other than the carotid artery, and you no know, it's very obvious if anyone who's done or attempted a central line before, and since I have done quite a few successfully, I can, you know, speak, I think, fairly authoritatively on this. If you inadvertently poke an artery, for example, it's like going to pretty that's going to be pretty darn obvious well before you get a the the post x-ray. I, I think it just goes to show that if you're not recognizing that the line was incorrectly placed until you get the post procedure chest x-ray, then something has gone very wrong with the supervision aspect of things, because I certainly remember, as a former uh, emergency medicine resident, I was basically not allowed to do those independently until I reached a certain level of competency. And certainly, as a future attending physician, uh, there would certainly be be no way that I would allow a uh, NP student to try doing a central line supervisor or not. I mean that uh, that's that's something, in my opinion you know, a physician should be doing or very, very directly, like watching over rear shoulder kind of uh, supervising.
0: Yeah, you know, that made me think of a story that I told in imposter doctors where a physician, a family doctor told me that she was in labor with her baby and she was consented for a an epidural and told I'm the CRNA who's going to be doing it, asked for a physician, was told our physicians don't do it, the CRNAs do it um it went badly multiple things went wrong and then she later on found out it wasn't even the crna it was a crna student who was actually attempting the procedure so i mean lack of informed consent and and of course things went wrong and you know this is just an example of you know why we take this training so seriously because people can be really harmed in the case you described of the um np student the, the patient had to be transferred to another facility to have the incorrectly placed line removed by a vascular surgeon. And then during all this transfer, they actually had a stroke and suffered permanent brain injury.
1: Uh, the fact that an NP student was allowed to even insert a, a central line, uh, I, I think is just absolutely crazy. I, I think really, that's really the best way to describe it.
0: Yeah, it's really worrisome. And I got to tell you, Kevin, as I was reading through this report, I mean, it kind of gave me goosebumps and chills because you know what? We've all made mistakes. We've all had bad outcomes. And some of the cases that were reported, I thought to myself, you know, this could happen to anyone. These were just really unfortunate situations. But ultimately, what I think separates some of these claims and one of the reasons why we're seeing an increase in claims on nurse practitioners, other than their increasing numbers has to do with problems with learning how to correctly diagnose patients. And in fact, the most frequent claim related to uh, incorrect diagnosis, failure to correctly diagnose, and the top injuries were death and cancer, so very serious outcomes. Talk to us about why you think that especially newer nurse practitioners, and but maybe all in general, are really struggling with making correct diagnoses for patients.
1: So I think that's really a complex uh, multifactorial answer, and certainly I'll try my best to kind of sum up what I think are the uh, the main causes. Um, and just going back to the background of the nurse practitioner profession, uh, it's basically started back in... Uh, 1965. This was, I want to say, if I remember correctly, Colorado and kind of underserved area. This was the background, and he created a pediatric nurse practitioner program in 1964, 1965. And as you might know, Loretta Ford was uh, one of the first nurse practitioners. And of course, if you look at the history of that, that was designed to mitigate a physician shortage, increase access of care in. Uh, underserved uh, populations, regions. But as we can see now, clearly that that has changed. There, first and foremost, there are a lot of direct entry nurse practitioner programs in which a person with no nursing experience, and as long as they have at least a bachelor's degree, can get their bachelor's of science in nursing, and then from there, they can directly progress uh, after taking the NCLEX exam, uh, the standard exam for nursing, which in itself is not you know, difficult compared to, say, uh, like the USMLE that we had to take. And now they're suddenly in the master's level NP course. And of course, that is mostly online with the exception of cynicals. And obviously, compared to a physician, if you've seen any of the diagrams out there, comparing physician training versus NP training, it's something like 500 to 700 hours versus anywhere from 15,000 hours to uh, for a family physician up to who knows how many hours for a neurosurgeon doing seven years of residency, certainly it's going to be some multiple of 15,000. But I mean, even in that alone, that's likely on the order of a few percent of the training hours that a physician would would have. A lot of nurse practitioners who are pro-independent practice like to make the argument that oh but this hour count doesn't involve all the time we spent in uh, you know nursing school uh, or a previous nursing experience and it's kind of a apple and orange type situation you can't really compare those you know being a nurse does not automatically give you the qualifications to be a doctor similarly being an electrician does not suddenly make you a great plumber things like that. So it's, it's kind of a disingenuous analogy. I think that's one of the major causes. Certainly, they aren't getting appropriate training uh, in school. And the other part of that is these days, uh, more and more uh, nurse practitioners are graduating from institutions, again, primarily online that are basically perceived as diploma mills in the eyes of not only physicians, but basically the general public. For example, probably the top offender would be uh, Walden University, which obviously has a big uh, for-profit business model and not just in healthcare and the uh, nurse practitioner education. Uh, admittedly, it has much longer route and costs involved, uh, both opportunity, financial, and time to uh, become a physician, but certainly at the end, the, the difference in training, uh, at least with what we've seen in 2023 and the last Ten years or so, I would say, is just markedly, markedly different, and that may have not been the case before in the sixties or seventies, the eighties, and certainly before my time. But from what I am seeing and from what I have read, you know, that was never really a major uh, issue un- until the rise of predominantly, you know, online for-profit uh, education.
0: Yeah, I think that's right on. And then I'll refer our listeners back to a podcast episode that we did on differential diagnosis and the fact that most many nurse practitioners don't really receive any training, which is trying to come up with all the possible causes for a patient's symptoms, which is something that takes many, many, many hours of training, and you have to have a big background in of understanding of medicine before you can even start to think of a diagnosis. If you've never heard of it, it can't even occur to you to think of it. So the other thing that this report talked about were the costs that the malpractice company was spending to help nurse practitioners protect their licenses if they were accused of wrongdoing. And it found that between 2012 and 2017, the costs that the company was spending increased by 61.1%. And then between 2017 and 2022, it increased another 10.5%. So why do you think that it is costing malpractice companies more money to defend nurse practitioners' licenses?
1: Uh, A large part of that probably has to do with inflation. The other thing which I can only speculate on because it it does generally seem that nurse practitioners uh, are not held to the same standard with regard to major malpractice or misconduct claims as phys- physicians are by their respective state medical boards. Uh, hopefully, that's a indication that state nursing boards are taking a more serious approach to pursuing misconduct claims or interve- intervening in uh, misconduct claims, but that would be something that I can only speculate about.
0: Well, that's an interesting question. So first of all, they break down what the type of allegations were for licensure issues. And the number one was professional conduct issues, with that being 27.2% of the claims or the um, the reports that they were dealing with. And then they actually broke down the actions that were taken by the State Board of Nursing for their clients. And they broke it down from the 2012 2017 and 2022 data. And what they found was that 43% of license matters led to some type of board action. So, you know, 57% did not have any action taken. But what's interesting is that when you look at the actions, most, most of the cases were no action. And then Probation was in 2022 were 12 percent, then letter or reprimand, uh, then consent order or stipulation, fine, continuing education. And then when you get down to license suspensions or revocations, it's just a teeny tiny bit do you think that uh, that there's an issue with nursing boards not acting as quickly to take away nursing licenses? It seems like in some of the cases that we've heard about, it seems like it's taking them an awful long time and often they don't, they just do these slap on the wrists.
1: Oh, for sure. Um, especially in these cases that involve scope of practice, which according to this report makes up 14.4% of the recent. Licensed defense claims. I, I think uh, there's this common trend that we're we're seeing. And again, this is I guess only anecdotal. I'm just speaking from my personal impression on the matter. In in cases where where there's scope of practice involved, um, where maybe the NP was doing something outside their scope of practice, or they were not being appropriately supervised, or something like that, we see a lot of these NPs. Uh, engage in a practice of basically claiming that they were not practicing medicine when to the viewpoint of any reasonable outside observer, uh, let's say, for example, they were trying to perform liposuction. Uh, I think most will agree that that is a surgical and certainly invasive procedure. And nursing boards in that case are, uh, they can't really do anything. They have no jurisdiction over the medical side of things. And at the same time, the medical board receives a similar complaint regarding a nurse practitioner uh, scope of practice. They simply don't have the statutory uh, authority to enforce any claims because technically, the medical boards are only enforcing, regulating the practice of medicine for its constituent uh, licensed medical doctors. So we we see this phenomenon where uh, no one is responsible. For example, I, I can recall a case that made a lot of headlines uh, in the online blogosphere, Reddit, uh, the Level WTF website, for example, where these two NPs had posted an Instagram video of themselves performing a liposuction. And it later came out that they were only being supervised in a very indirect cursory manner by a... A pathologist. Uh, I believe this pathologist was certainly advanced in age, and certainly I I, I think you and I would agree, along with any other reasonable outside person, that a pathologist is not qualified to form or supervise a practice of liposuction, let alone form an invasive procedure on a very live person. To my knowledge, at least one of the nurse practitioners involved in that case is still. Practicing, I'm, I'm not sure what she's doing. I I have read the medical board complaint regarding the supervising physician, and I believe the super supervising physician, from what I've heard, was more or less forced to retire. Whereas at least one of these MPs is still being allowed to practice whatever it is she does, and I I think to me that's just very clear cut evidence that a lot of nursing boards simply do not. Or refuse to uh, investigate claims like this, where there's uh, concerns about the scope of practice or uh, supervision, because they they'll point the finger at the nursing board, and and similarly, if the medical board receives the analogous complaint, it's uh, kind of a he said she said type of thing. And in these cases, if there's no obvious patient harm, uh, you know, maybe difficult to prove damages and see what law was actually broken. I think that's uh, that's a huge, huge issue. Um, I think realistically, nurse practitioners, their scope of practice essentially is practicing medicine, right? They're prescribing medication, making diagnoses, perhaps incorrectly, but uh, diseases don't behave differently just because a nurse practitioner or a physician is treating them. It all depends on the skill of the practitioner involved. And unfortunately, medical legally, you know, there's not that distinction. You know, the NPs can claim that they were practicing nursing or healthcare. The doctor will claim that they're practicing medicine for what was essentially the exact same thing. So I think there's a lot to be improved on or caught up on in the medical legal realm.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it is a catch-22, because I think about Jeremy Wattenberger. When I interviewed him, his daughter, who was seven, died after she was diagnosed with the flu. Um, she turned out to have flu, but also streptococcal pneumonia and sepsis. And Jeremy was really concerned that he didn't, first of all, realize he was being, Betty was being treated by a nurse practitioner because they, she was just called the provider, so he didn't know. That was one thing. But then he just felt like there was no physician oversight, and so he took it to the Board of Nursing. And the Board of Nursing investigated, and ultimately, they did reprimand the nurse practitioner. But what they reprimanded her for was not properly obtaining vital signs, not for making a misdiagnosis or improper referral. So because what they were focused on was were nursing tasks, and that I think is the crux of the problem when you have a nursing board overseeing people that are acting in a role that is more toward what a physician is expected to do. I don't know that the nursing board, especially if they're not nurse practitioners and they don't understand the role, I don't know that they even can properly oversee these situations.
1: Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. And in cases where we see these nurse practitioners uh, being involved in or owning or performing, uh, let's say, cosmetic medicine procedures, if you look at the traditional fields, uh, the population focuses of the various, if you want to call them specialties of the nurse practitioner profession, for example, family nurse practitioner, acute care nurse practitioner, the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, a lot of what these uh, NPs are doing, especially the independent practice ones, really don't fall into a a neat category that would be well-defined by their official training, whatever limited training they may have. Like
0: practice standards. I think that there's a lack of those.
1: Yeah, exactly. And no one could reasonably argue that you know administering Botox, IV hydration, weight loss medication, stuff like that it could argue with good faith that that's serving a you know a family focused population or a acute care population and you know any believable sense um certainly hopefully we'll we'll see the boards start to look into and enforce these population scopes a, a bit more aggressively in the future but, Uh, To be honest, with the way things are going and with how many of these fly-by-night operations are are going on, uh, a lot of these are even telepsych or like telemedicine clinics being opened up by these nurse practitioners who have multiple licenses in uh, multiple states. And of course, this is facilitated by the um, interstate licensure agreements that were, a lot of them were int, int, implemented both on the nursing and medicine side after COVID, but, uh, you know, with the ease at which they can start getting medical license, or I'm sorry, nursing licenses in multiple states, it's often, it's not even clear where they live. And you hear these stories about NPs treating while they're, you know, on a beach in Costa Rica or something like that. Um, it's, you uh, Uh, Absolutely wild. And obviously, it's very difficult to investigate these these cases, even when you you don't have a good idea of where that practitioner lives. It's, um, again, one of those absolutely wild things that I think there's a lot to be desired from the enforcement standpoint. And to be honest, since state nursing and medical boards are obviously public uh, government funded entities. I'm not even sure they would have the the manpower or the human resources to really investigate any of these infractors, uh, especially if it's difficult to prove uh, prove you know something bad happened when we all know that you know every day the operations are potentially doing something dangerous or medically inadvisable.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right and one of the things that this report points out they say the increase in claims may be attributed to the overall increase of NPs in the workforce and they point out that the uh, number uh, when they the data that they looked at um there were about 290,000 nurse practitioners that was in 2019 or so but in April of 2022 the AANP reported that the number of NPs in the workforce had increased to 360 Thousand. I mean, it is just an astronomical growth, especially considering that physicians' uh, numbers have remained pretty stagnant at about a million, just over a million. And then they point out that one of the areas to watch is psychiatric and nurse uh, psychiatric mental health because there's a big increase in NPs filling the role that should, or traditionally, has been filled by psychiatrists. So one of the things that I did just for fun is I went to the National Practitioner Database and I put in, you can do this yourself, um, I'm going to show this on our video, but you can put in the years and you can select different clinician types. So I put in nurse practitioner, advanced practice nurse, uh, between 2006 and 2022, and you can just see this is just by malpractice settlements, the number just going up, up, up. And yet, if you put in physicians, MD and DO, the number is trending down, down, down. And that's really interesting. And the same thing if you put in um, just adverse action reports, which is if, you know, hospitals have to report something went wrong. It's not necessarily it's a malpractice, but it's an adverse action. Same thing, NPs up. And physicians in this one, they were trending a little bit up, but then in the last couple years coming down, down, down. It'll be very interesting to see if rulemaking bodies examine this data, especially in states where independent practice has been granted, to go back and look and see if it was a good idea to do that or if maybe we need to start reining in some of this practice. If not, one would imagine that market forces will start to correct some of these changes as malpractice rates and premiums increase for non-physicians. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Kevin Zhang, for helping me examine malpractice trends among nurse practitioners. Sure.
1: My pleasure. and Thanks for your time, Dr. Bernard.
0: I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please get the books Patients at Risk and Imposter Doctors. They're available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. They both have an Audible audiobook that you can download, and the Kindle editions have hyperlinks to the 999 citations that is uh, between the two books. If you're a physician, please consider joining our group, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. We uh, are focused on advocating for physician-led care for all patients and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners. And if you would like to be a guest on my podcast or you have a suggestion for a topic, just send me a message through the website, patientsatrisk.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.